Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? One of my favorite things to do is to engage in an interesting conversation with another person. But that's becoming harder to do because having an interesting personal conversation has become a lost art. What passes for conversation today sounds to me more like people sharing their schedules, what tournament their kids were in, or their social calendar or vacation plans, or the conversation sounds more superficial than I want, you know, just a sharing of news, weather, sports. How do you take a conversation deeper? How do you talk about more important things or even personal things without it being awkward? How do you have conversations about sensitive topics without ending up in an argument? We're talking today with Heather Holloman. She's written a book called The Six Conversations, Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility. Let's hop in. Heather Holloman, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. This is going to be a fun conversation. Well, I'm looking forward to it, too. You know, your book on conversation called The Six Conversations, Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility. It jumped off the Amazon page when I looked at it. I love conversation. And I grew up in a family that valued conversation. Mm. And I'm wondering, where did you come up with your love for conversation? Is that something that you were taught or you just naturally gifted that way? Where did you learn to value conversation? (laughs) Oh, no, it is the opposite. I grew up a lonely child. I was a military daughter and I was the worst conversationalist. I was profoundly lonely. By the time I got to college, I was an incessant talker. I used foul language, complaining. When I tried to get friends, I was a flatterer. Jesus really needed to come into my life and change me. Like my spiritual journey is a lot about learning how to be a better conversationalist. So I had a deep passion from the time I was a child to figure out how in the world do you have a warm and loving connection with someone? So you're coming into the conversation game and caring about it and improving in it a little bit later in life. And so how did you train yourself? And did you read books on it? Did you just observe other people and what they were doing? Is this part of your research as a professor? Yes, it is. So the main biggest change, if you know anything about me, you know I'm passionate about God's Word. And it was really Philippians 2 where Paul talks about valuing other people, taking on the interests of other people. A lot of my spiritual maturity was about learning how to not be self-obsessed. And I was a national debater, so I was really argumentative. I love winning debate. So I would win a ton of arguments and have no friends at the University of Virginia. It actually began out of study of the epidemic of loneliness on the college campus. So I've been teaching at Penn State for almost 20 years in the college classroom for 25. And I would share the results of the Harvard grant study every year with my students, which is the longest research study ever conducted. It's still going on. And this study of adult development is trying to answer the question, what's the single most determining factor of a happy life? And the answer that they are finding and continue to find is warm relationships. So that obviously begs the question, how do you get those? So for the past really 10 years, I've been reading social science research. I've been reading the Bible. I've been trying to figure this out. How do we create warm connections, not only to intervene in the loneliness epidemic, but also to save our mental and physical health? Because what researchers are finding is chronic loneliness is breaking down the body's health. So this is like a big deal for me. I feel like it's an intervention into the culture, not just because my love of Jesus, but because it's bad for your health. 
both mental and physical, to be lonely. Yeah, so let's go back to that loneliness thing because we must be reading some of the same stuff. I looked and there was an article put out by Harvard School of Education Mm -hmm. and it said that 61% of young adults, and they didn't define young adults in the part that I read, but I'm assuming that's college and through at least early mid-20s, 61% of young adults and 51% of moms with young kids feel lonely. Mm-hmm. And you're teaching on campus and you're a mom. So help me understand, does that fit with your experience? I mean, when you talk with students, are they lonely? And why is that? Because you think in college, this is the time where you're living around people, you're hanging yeah. out with people, you're having a lot of fun. You don't have a lot of the obligations of family responsibilities. This is the time you're supposed to have like your best friends in life. So help me understand, why are college students so lonely? Well, just so you know, and I do like to be careful, you know, I am a professor, the stories I tell, I usually get permission to tell. So I can tell you in general terms, I'm even hearing as early as two days ago, a student said to me, Dr. H, I don't think anyone realizes how lonely it is to be a college student. And this is a student who, you know, they're dating, they're probably in a fraternity, and yet this profound sense of disconnection from people. So I would say there's a lot of factors going on. Number one, I do think the rise of our presence on social media, I sound like such an old person when I say that, but a lot of students say, you know, they're really good at texting and sharing TikToks, but when it comes time, you know, for the one-on-one conversation, they don't know how to do it. And I teach professional development. So a large part of my teaching is helping young adults figure out how to have a great conversation because it's really good for your professional life. So they've lost that skill. The other thing is, and I think you'll be interested in this, is just the rise of incivility, meaning they have a deep fear of speaking because they don't want to be canceled. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to reveal any opinion or position. So I have students that will say to me, I don't want to say anything. Like I'm afraid to talk. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing and maybe being unintentionally offensive. Yes, because in any given classroom setting, for example, they're nervous. They're suspicious of each other. And I see this in my community as well. So thinking about being a mom, what I'm seeing in the culture is people approach each other and instead of believing the best and having that curious mindset that's so vital for a warm connection. Instead, they're sort of vetting each other. They're thinking, okay, who did you vote for? What did you believe about vaccines? What was your stance on Roe v. Wade? And I feel like that is immediately putting up a barrier and preventing warm connection. So I really began to research, how do I help people have the right mindsets just to go into a good conversation? Yeah, I want to get into that a little bit later and go a little bit deeper in that. For now, do you think COVID had a bad effect on conversation? In other words, we sent everybody home and we told them to isolate or shelter in place. We made people wear masks. And, you know, I'm not judging whether that was good or bad. It's just what happened. And then when kids came back to campus or people went back to work or they went back to church, all the places that they hung out, they had to kind of relearn some skills that maybe some of those skills had deteriorated over yes. time. Did you find that on campus that that when students came back, they were worse at having conversations than before? Yes. And I was even worse at it. And my children, I mean, part of it is you're isolated. And instead of, you know, sitting around having meaningful conversations, a lot of us just were in our room, you know, on Netflix or you know, TikTok or whatever it was, I think we realized, you know, we don't really know how to talk. And imagine that happening with the effect of the political and social climate already making people nervous about having conversations. So there was just a lot of literal isolation, people in their rooms. And I know the education that went to remote learning also shut down our ability to converse because people weren't building rich classroom community. You were looking at a professor lecturing on a screen and then you would log off. That was the end. And so it's a time to kind of rehabilitate the art of conversation and the stakes are really high for mental and physical and spiritual health. Well, yeah, you mentioned that earlier that it has an effect on your health, physical health. I read that being lonely is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. (laughs) (laughs) I did read that in the Harvard grant study, but I just showed my students a 2020 research report that if you have rich friendships and a sense of belonging, your cholesterol levels are lower and your immune system is better. Now, I'm not sure how they're measuring, like I need to go into the data more, but they're looking at why 
people who are lonely are suffering so much in their body. So I'm fascinated by this cholesterol and immune system problem. It's almost as if our body and soul are all connected. In other words, we can't divide it out, right? Yes. But there has to be something different between just being around people and having warm relationships. Right. That's the question. So can you help us maybe understand the difference there? Because let's just go back to campus. And this could be anywhere, but you're on campus. And that's what this study was talking about. 61% of college students feeling lonely. But here they are. They're around each other. They're living in Greek houses or they're living in the dorm or a big apartment complexes. They're around each other in classes. So whether it's college students or just people in neighborhoods and work environments and churches, what's the difference between having good relationships and just being around lots of people and maybe even knowing lots of people? Right. The difference is, is what the research calls closeness enhancing behaviors. So I was just in a faculty meeting with a bunch of professors. We were talking, we were together. There was no sense of closeness or warmth, hmm. even though they're friends with me, even though we had a good time. So what I learned is in order to have closeness enhancing behaviors. So in my classroom, in my community, in my family, I do four things. I deeply commit to being curious, interpersonal curiosity, asking about people. I'm committed to believing the best about them. It's called unconditional positive regard. So when you do that, people begin to feel warmly connected to you because you like them. They can tell that you like them. Then when you express concern, this is huge. This is huge in the literature I read and also biblically, this idea of carrying one another's burdens. It's not about exhausting yourself or having people violate your boundaries because that's big. We talk about that a lot, but it's about assuming a special responsibility for someone's welfare and they know that you're invested in the outcome of whatever they're sharing with you. And then the fourth one is sharing your own life in a vulnerable way. So I have a lot of acquaintances, you know, obviously on a college campus, I might interact with a hundred people a day, but the warm closeness enhancing behaviors, that's when I'm with a professor in her office. You know, she's concerned about me. I'm curious about her life. I know she likes me. She's expressing concern. And then we're sharing our lives. That's where the joy is for me. And that's where I begin to feel that loneliness goes away. I know that I'm connected to people deeply, but you need what's called closeness enhancing behaviors. So it sounds as if the goal isn't to have conversations. It sounds like the goal is to have these warm, deep relationships and conversation is a means to get there. That's right. That's a really great way to say it. That's exactly right. I was trying to think, okay, you know, in certain cultures, how does connection happen? How does anything happen between people? And so I really had to ask the question, is conversation the key? Is having a good conversation enough to create closeness and warmth? And what I found is, yes, it is. It's the primary way that we can have a relational connection with people. And I love just biblically the idea that God is relational. I looked at a lot of the theology of why a loving conversation seems so important. And so I'm really excited about what conversations can do. But you're right, it's not just about asking questions or doing this or that. It's sort of this whole mindset you have about what's happening when you engage with another person. So let's go back to those things that you said, I think in the book you call them a mindset. Is that right? Yes. Four mindsets to having the loving conversation. And the first one you mentioned is to be curious. So are people born curious or do we learn to be curious? Because one of the things that I've always enjoyed is just learning about stuff. You know, yeah. I could sit and talk with you forever about your discipline. Now, I'm never going to pursue that discipline. I don't have that background. <laughs> I don't know much about it. But I could just ask you a thousand questions to the point of being incredibly annoying about it. But somehow I think just I was born that way. Is that true? Some people are born to ask questions and be curious and want to learn and investigate. Or is that not true? Do we all learn it in some sort of environment? Well, let me ask you this. Do you know many people who are like you? I think it's rare. I don't know many people like you, Keith. I have very few people who ask me meaningful questions. I have very few interpersonally curious people in my life. So when I find one, it is gold to me. So what I tell my students is you can develop the art of interpersonal curiosity, but it takes a change in viewpoint. And what I teach them is every person you meet has something to teach you. Every person you meet is of infinite 
value and they have a one of a kind viewpoint on the universe because of who they are. I even say like nobody grew up in your house with your backyard. Like, think about that. There are billions of people on the planet. Only you grew up in your hometown. You know, it's just marvelous if you think about it. And so I prime students by giving them a list of my favorite, you know, 100 questions to ask. I teach them, okay, be curious about each other. And if you can't cultivate it, ask yourself, okay, what would a curious person do? Like fake it almost until you're able to adopt this kind of idea. But really it's also rooted in self-obsession. I've talked to professors who know I've written this book and they'll say, well, I know what my problem is. I just don't care about other people. (laughs) He literally said, I just am not interested in other people. And he knows it's a problem. So I think the beauty of the Christian life is the Holy Spirit at least helps me take my eyes off myself and really enact Romans 12, which is an astonishing passage. It is an astonishing chapter to honor one another above yourselves. And to ask someone a loving question about their life is really a way to honor them, to show interest in them, to believe, you know, you're not arrogant, you're not superior to them. You really believe you can learn from everyone. So curiosity is wonderful. And it does impact your happiness levels. The curiosity research is wonderful about if you are curious, you'll have better marriages, you'll have stronger friendships. People who are curious do better at work. So when you see your supervisor asking a really wonderful question about that person's life, you'll build rapport with that person, you'll succeed better on your team. So it's one of the best, if not the best professional skill young people can develop is being curious about other people. And curiosity is expressed in questions, right? Yeah. The six pathways, like categories of how you can ask really good questions so you can start a conversation and never get lost again. Yeah. And so I'm curious about your experience on this is I think one reason that people aren't as curious or don't have as much to share is because they're just involved in the rat race of chasing their kids around, driving their kids from this practice to that practice. Mm. Uh, They're busy at work. They are juggling a lot of balls. And so when you get together with them and you talk with them, what happens is we talk about whatever we've been exposed to. Well, what have I been exposed to? Well, I've been driving my kids to this or that tournament. And so people end up talking about their kids' sports or, you know, new sports weather, kind of a rather superficial level of information. Now, I can only talk about that stuff for so long. And I just want to like ram the salad fork in my eye because it turns out I don't care how Tina is doing in her volleyball or, you know, Joey's doing in baseball. I can fake caring for a while, but I don't really care about seventh grade traveling volleyball tournament. But there have to be issues that we share in common that we do care about and that are seem like deeper and more substantive. So do you have any tricks of how to steer yes. conversations toward issues that are maybe a little more yes. rewarding and get out of the, what did you do today? I went to the grocery store kind of stuff. Yes. Well, actually that chit chat or, or this kind of like what you're talking about, the surface level conversations, those aren't bad and they can actually make you feel less alone. And some people actually need to practice the art of small talk because it's not bad to do that. It's a great way to start. But what I love about what I learned about the six pathways is even asking a question about Tina on the volleyball team, you have six categories that you can ask questions in that will actually get you to a deep and rich conversation. For example, if I was talking to you about Tina on the volleyball team, I might move into a volitional question and say, you know what, Tina seems really talented. How did you guys make the choice for her to go into volleyball? I want to hear that story. You're going to tell me that story and I'm going to notice, okay, There may have been a spiritual valence there. I could go spiritual like, wow, it really seems like you guys had to discern or, you know, whatever it is. Or you might ask a question like, you know, volleyball, it seems like it would be really hard on the body. You know, I might ask about her body. Has she had any injuries? And then it was my turn to share. I might say, you know, I remember that time I was on the volleyball court and had an injury and it was really hard for me. And I remember how it really deeply affected my relationship with God. And before you know it, you're in a gospel presentation about Tina and Tina needing to choose to go to Young Life. And before you know it, you're sharing the gospel. They're coming to church with you. That got deep. It's so much easier than you think if you follow the conversational path. Now, don't laugh. My primary gift is evangelism. So I'm always trying to figure out 
Jesus, how can you enter into this conversation? And where are you at work? And help me ask the questions to get to the heart of the matter. I mean, you can even do it over coffee, like asking someone why they chose a certain type of coffee. You would be amazed at how you can get to such a rich connection if you just keep moving down the pathways of connecting notice what people want to talk about, share your life, express concern. It's going to go deep. I really liked how you did that, where you took the volleyball (laughs) and you took (laughs) the volleyball as the topic that they want to Mm -hmm. talk about. Maybe they brought it up because that's what they did that day. And then you were able to kind of be interested in it, but maneuver the conversation to something more substantive. And maybe it'll be faith issues or maybe it'll just be, you know, maybe they are too invested as a parent in their kids' sports. And so you talk about what you learned about being invested in your kids and being able to let go of them or whether it was Tina's decision or their decision to be a part of the volleyball team. So you start getting into values. How do you parent? How are you shepherding your kid? I really like all of that. So curiosity, believe the best. Yes. Believing the best these days is tough. We almost catch people in inconsistencies or we almost look for them being hypocritical. And the way I have heard believe the best is what's the best interpretation? What's the best reason they might have made this choice? Trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Do you have any examples of giving people the benefit of the doubt or how is it that we can be motivated to do that? Now, this is really hard, and I'll be honest. One of my favorite teaching quotes is, we teach what we most need to learn. Hmm. And this is what I most need to learn. Here's why. We're at a cultural moment where it almost seems immoral to believe the best. In other words, you're morally superior if you cancel someone, if you shame and have public accountability, which I do agree with public accountability for wrongdoing, and I do support protest culture. It has its place, public protest. But for example, I've heard people believing that they're in the moral right by refusing to invite certain family members, for example, to a wedding because they voted for the wrong political candidate. So you have families literally ripped apart, churches ripped apart. You know, my students say they have canceled family members. They do not want to go home for Thanksgiving, these kind of things. So I really wrestled with this, Keith. I searched the scriptures. I looked at the social science research because it seems like God loves the spirit of unity. And it seems like if you really want to affect social change, the best way to do it is to get involved with people's lives and actually have great conversations with them about what they believe. So believing the best means that you're always thinking there's a story behind why this person cares so deeply about what they care about. And there are values there that may actually align with your values. You just don't know it yet. So in my classroom and in my community, I obviously meet people that believe vastly different things than I do about almost every social issue. And yet I'm able to say to them, I know you care a lot about this. I would love to hear the story about when you first became passionate about this issue. And it turns out it is very rare that someone wakes up wanting to be evil and harm people. Even though like we're all sinners and need a salvation, most people are trying to do their best. And so believing the best is in the social science research called unconditional positive regard, which if you're a Christian. That sounds a lot like unconditional love of God, God's grace, the unmerited favor we have. I try to extend that to other people and think there's a story there. They are trying to do their best. They believe that they're doing the right thing. They believe that they are being good. So my job is to find out, tell me more. I want to know this about you. I want to get close to you and learn from you. And then guess what? That person will learn from you and ask about your positions and suddenly nobody's in a reactive brain state anymore. They're in what researchers call a responsive brain state. Everyone's calm and you're more likely to change your mind in a responsive brain state. So if you care about changing someone's mind, you're not going to get far if you mock and cancel them. Right. I completely agree with that. If you're willing to build a friendship with people, you will learn why they're doing what they're doing. I had a an educator in our community who everybody respects. She's held all kinds of different positions of leadership in our school system. And one time we were doing a little seminar for teachers at our church, and she wasn't claiming this is unique to her. I'm sure this is passed around in education circles, but I heard it from her. She said, every behavior makes sense in its context. 
And I thought about that and I thought, well, that's true. It doesn't mean every behavior is right or you would want to condone or support every behavior, but you understand how it came about. If you understand where that person came from, maybe what their home life is like, how they grew up, what values they were taught. And so I think when you get to know people, you understand the context that shapes their beliefs or shapes their behaviors or whatever. I remember reading a book by Alex Haley about Malcolm Mm -hmm. X. I don't know if you ever read that, the autobiography of Malcolm X. You know, I've always had this idea of Malcolm X being this kind of hater, this activist, angry, belligerent. And when you read the book and you understand how he grew up, you start going, well, if I grew up that way, I might have done some of the things and said some of the things that he did. And again, it doesn't mean that you agree with them, but it does mean that you understand them. And maybe you can even influence them or maybe let them influence you. Maybe it should be that way. So you also talk about sharing your life. This is the last of the mindset I want to cover. Sometimes I think it's hard for us to share our lives with people, but if we don't share our life people aren't going to share their life with us, right? I mean, nobody wants that to be a one-way street. It's got to be mutual. Right. That's right. I was not good at sharing my life. And part of the reason why is I wasn't self-aware enough to know what I was going through. You know, I wasn't a very self-reflective person. So now I like to always know, and this is also what I ask other people about, you know, what are the major stressors? What thought is keeping me up at night that I need to talk about? And then I like the volitional category, knowing what the major decisions are that are coming next. So when my friend, you know, after we've shared a while and she says, okay, what's been on your mind, which is my favorite question, the cognitive, when someone says, Heather, what have you been thinking about? I just love that question. I have to be able to have an answer. I have to share my life. The other reason I didn't share my life was arrogance. I was selective because I was snobby. I thought, well, why does this person get my story? You know what I mean? It was deeply rooted in sin and exalting myself over other people. So no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, no matter what level of education you have, I will share my life with you. I used to be terrible at that. Now I love it. It's a way of honoring someone. It's a gift to share your story. And so whenever I can, I want to do that. So don't you think a lot of people won't share their life almost for the opposite reason, or at least it appears opposite, maybe it has a lot in common with what you said, but they're insecure. Like if the person knows the real me, if they know my story, they will reject me or judge me. That's why believing the best is such a key mindset. Right. And you've got to express liking. The Yale Relationship Lab talks about this. It's not enough to just feel it in your heart that you are believing the best. If you're with someone who's insecure and not sharing their life, you have to express what's called liking. So I regularly say to people that I can tell are nervous around me, I'll say, I am loving spending time with you. I just want you to know I really like being with you and I really love talking to you. Just say a word, you know, express liking, remind them of a great memory you have of them or compliment them on something that you respect about them. And then that will help. That's a closeness enhancing behavior that will encourage them to share their life. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families.
So let's go back to the idea of loneliness. And what I've been reading, and I'm curious if it fits with your research and experience, is that men have a bigger problem than women with this. In 1990, 55% of men said they had at least six friends. Now only 27% of men say that. And to be frank, I think that's high based on the men Mm -hmm. that I know. 15% of single men say they have no close friends. Are you seeing that men have this problem more than women and any idea as to why that is? I have seen that and I have read the research about male loneliness. You know, I did study the emotion of shame. It could be what you're talking about that they're, you know, maybe embarrassed to talk about what they're really going through. They don't feel like there's a safe space to talk about it. There's also a lack of connection points other than maybe something stereotypical. It's rare that I haven't seen too many like, oh, let's get together for book club and conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not enough in the culture to support male friendships that what I've seen. But honestly, I haven't done enough research as to why, but my best guess would be it might have something to do with shame and it might have something to do with we haven't set up enough spaces for men to have rich and meaningful friendships in the same way that maybe we support that for women, they're more likely to get together in social clubs. But again, I'm not an expert in that area. I don't know. Do you have a guess? Do you have a guess, Keith, about why men aren't getting the rich friendships? I'm not sure why. I just noticed that it happens all the time and that most men, at best, they have acquaintances that they can talk to about the superficial things of life, but they don't have very many people that they can go deeper and talk about what they might even think of as heart issues. The why am I this way? Or what's happening in my marriage? Or what's happening with my body as I age? Does this scare me? Or what am I afraid of at work and how the economy is going to affect my job? And they don't have many people to talk to at that level. And it goes back to this Harvard study that you mentioned earlier that I want you to tell me a little bit more about, if I understand it right, and I might have a different study in mind, so correct me if I have it wrong, but they did kind of a longitudinal study with undergraduates from Harvard, and they compared Harvard students with some kids in Boston that were from lower income neighborhoods, right? And what they found is that what made a person happy was not academic success, it wasn't professional success, it wasn't wealth, it wasn't all the things that you might think that really what made a person happy and satisfied with their life is if they had close friendships. Yeah. So we're just stuck because what we really crave is close friendships. And yet we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to talk with people. We don't know how to do it. I know. Well, you know, as we're talking about the male friendship issue, one thing that I love about my husband, Ash, as an introvert, when we started mapping out the six conversations as an introverted shy guy, he's building so many wonderful connections with friends, even on airplanes or with other people on his team. He just told me he got to go out with a friend and they were talking for two and a half hours. I saw the guy he was with in the grocery store and the guy was like, I got to do that again. Would you tell your husband to invite me out again for wings? And I told Ash, I said, what did you guys do? What did you talk about? And it's the six conversations. Just start asking the first question, move down the pathway. They got to spiritual issues. They got to physical issues, like every category, like people are lonely. They're craving it. And I think it is a challenge in the culture to prioritize deep, meaningful relationships. But if you're worried because you're someone who's not good at it, the book is really a training manual. And again, my husband is like proof of concept. He's not natural at this. And yet he's able to do this and get the warm connections. And our marriage is better. We have such a better marriage now. Because he's implementing what you taught him in the book. Well, yes, we both are. (laughs) And it's wonderful. And, you know, listening to core values, like I told you, he knows I love the cognitive category. Right. So he'll come in and be like, what are you thinking about, Heather? Let's talk about it. What is it? You know, and then he loves talking about physical processes and work systems and physical spaces. So when I'm like, tell me about the work projects, honey, tell, you know, it's like his love language. She's like, oh, yes. You know, it's wonderful. You just feel like so warm and so connected. Well, one thing I really like about your book is that it doesn't stay in the theory level. It really is super practical. You have an appendix of 100 questions to ask. You walk people through a process. 
anybody can take this book and apply it to their life. One of the chapters is what goes wrong in conversations. Like, what do we do that kind of blows up a conversation or takes it a wrong direction? And one of the ones that stood out to me is that we have a temptation to give advice. Advice giving. I think that's how you put it, right? And why is that a no-no? Why does that shut down conversations? Well, nobody likes it. Nobody likes to be given advice. They just don't. In fact, I ask people all the time when they're sharing their life with me and they present a problem. And if I say, would you like advice or would you like me to keep asking you good questions? (laughs) Everyone says, I want you to keep out. Nobody wants advice. They want the questions. It shuts down conversation because it's not arrogant as much as that's not a warm connection. You're not going to them as a therapist or a doctor. You don't need a solution. You need a warm connection. Mm -hmm. So the goal is the warm connection. And so I really, I was such an advice giver that I had to learn to not give advice ever. So I think it just makes people feel um, almost like children, maybe like you're being condescended to. It's so hard because our natural tendency is somebody shares a problem and at least some of us are wired to want to jump in and solve the problem. And I think you're saying, no, your goal isn't to solve a problem. Your goal is to connect with them and trying to solve the problem shuts them down. Instead of just drawing them out and maybe even drawing them out and asking good questions, maybe that leads to a solution, but that can't be the goal. A person can tell when they've become your project and maybe by offering too much advice too soon, they feel like they're now your project, your problem to solve. Another one you mentioned is body language. And I have really, (laughs) really bad body language. I mean, I have horrible body language. My wife and I went on a trip with some really good friends of ours, and the wife, uh, I won't mention her name because it wasn't her fault, it was my fault, she and I at dinner got in an argument. Now, we're good enough friends that getting arguments is not a big deal, right? But we get in an argument, and she's really mad at me, and she says the reason she's mad at me is not because I'm disagreeing with her, but because of the look on my face. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. kind of a condescending, I can't believe you're so dumb as to believe this look. Now, that's her interpretation, right? I didn't have a sign on my face that said those things, but nonetheless, that's how she interpreted it, right? And I have really bad body language, my facial expressions, whatever. So is there a way to improve that, that yes. I can improve that? Or am I just stuck with this for my rest of my life? Well, of course, there are body language experts. And, you know, the things I learned that I was doing wrong is I show interest and concern by scrunching up my face and furrowing my eyebrows to the point where I'm constantly looking like I'm angry at you. So I learned that if you raise your eyebrows, it shows interest, your eyes get bigger, you're looking in their eyes. Also, If you tilt your chin up a little bit and expose your neck, I know that's weird, but researchers say that shows interest and vulnerability. I never knew that before. So just tilting up your chin a little bit, raising your eyebrows, that's really helpful. Some people say lean forward, like you're really listening. Some people say lean back because it's more open. I mean, I would try different things. After I read that kind of research, I did practice in the mirror just to see, okay, what does my face look like when I'm listening to you? So now I try to raise my eyebrows, tilt my chin up. The other thing is to let people know that they're my priority. So turning my phone off, putting it in my purse, letting them know I am giving you my full attention is a huge gift to people. So all of that is related to body language. Well, I have a lot to learn and the people around me will be very happy to know that you're teaching me and that you're giving yes, me some advice. It, I'm going to I'm going to yes. try it tonight. I'm going to have my eyebrows way way up so people who are eating with me tonight brace yourself. So you talk about asking questions as being really important. Jesus asked a lot of questions. He does. Famously he asked a lot more questions than he answered. But what is it about questions that are so intriguing? Why do they build connection? Well, I love the neuroscience behind a really good question. It does raise dopamine levels. People are attentive when you ask a question. Like if I were to say to you, Keith, I have one question for you. Your brain would actually attend to me more in that moment. So questions are inherently pleasurable. And when you ask a question, it shows this level of interest and love. It's a way to enact Philippians too, you know, taking on the interest of other people. How are you going to know what they are unless you ask a really good question. So questions to me 
are the way to start a really good conversation. They are pleasurable for the listener. And they're just something that you can continue to practice for the rest of your life. I collect great questions. If I notice someone asking a really good question, I'll write it down, which is why I have a hundred of my favorite questions. And lately I've been indexing them in terms of age and what age is like certain questions. So young children love it when you ask them about their friends or pets, they will go on and on if you ask about their animal friends. And I learned that teenagers love it if you ask them like their favorite way to procrastinate. (laughs) They also love it if you compliment something about them and ask them, how did you get it that way? So for example, if you say, oh my gosh, you have the best hair. Can you tell me what your hair care ritual is? They're all into their products. (laughs) What's your skincare? So I like to notice that. And then I'll put a little note, like great for teens, great for young people, you know, great for grandparents. So lately I'm collecting questions that I can tell really delight the listener. So I'm having so much fun just collecting great questions that make people want to open up. I hate the question, how are you? Because the weak verb is too existential. It's the state of being verb. How are you? How was your trip? You're only going to get one word answers because the neuroscience shows that when you hear a weak verb, your brain has to work so hard to figure out what you mean, as opposed to a verb that's a strong verb that gives an image. So if I were to say, Keith, what has most surprised you about this day so far? your brain automatically can go to an answer because you're thinking, oh, what surprised me? Or if I said, what challenged you about your day? That's different than if I said, how was your day? You'd be like, oh, it's fine. I'm doing well. But if I put a strong verb in there, the research shows your brain, it's easier to answer that question and you actually will get a vivid, clear response. And so I've really learned a lot about what the bad questions are that nobody answers. So those of you don't know you, Professor Holloman is also a verb fanatic. Yes, that's right. That's your part of speech that you love and people can find out more in your books. I want to go back to the questions. I like to ask questions too. The questions that you were mentioning that you're learning and keeping track of, are those the hundred questions in your book in the appendix or are these in addition that we can find them on some website? Yes. Well, the hundred of my favorite questions are just at the time of publication. So what I'm telling you is I'm continuing to collect them. And what I'm going to do probably in the next couple of days is maybe list my top 10 questions for different age groups, but they're not categorized right now. The ones you see are the ones that my college students love to answer. And they love to answer the one, what's your favorite way to procrastinate? Yeah, And it's really fun. And then you can go ask other questions about whatever they say. You'll learn a lot about people. Where do we find your updated list? I do have a blog, a daily blog. And so you can find it there and I'll probably post it on my author Facebook page. Okay. So I do have a favorite question. Do you want me to tell you my new favorite one? Okay. This is from Georgie Nightingale. She runs a conversation clinic in the UK. And I learned from her that you can ask this question, what kind of day are you having on a scale of one to 10? And then whatever the person answers, this next question is a game changer, whatever they answer. So say they say a two, you say, what would have to happen to make it a 10? So I did it with my students the other day and it was so funny what they said they needed to have a really good day. I learned so much about them and they were laughing at me that every time I answer that question, it's always related to how good my coffee was in the morning. They're like, you're so easy to please, Dr. H. It's always about coffee, which is true. But then you know what my core values are. Well, you do find out what's important to people when they ask that follow-up question. One question I like to ask people and I have asked all my friends this, so I can't ask them anymore, but I asked them, what percentage of your professional and academic success do you attribute to good choices and hard work? And what percentage do you attribute to luck? Ooh. That gets into a lot oh, of great stuff good. about how do you think about your success? How do you think about your choices? How do you think about other people who have either experienced success or haven't? And then you can go back and you go, well, what if you were born in, you know, eighth century Afghanistan? How would you think about it? And it launches a whole set of conversations that are pretty interesting. Oh, I love that. I want to move on to the idea of listening, because if we're going to ask questions, 
then we've got to listen to those questions. And listening is kind of a superpower, right? Being a good listener. But when you talk about listening, you talk about it in the book about listening for certain things. I mean, you're not just listening so you could repeat it back to them, but you're listening for key things in the conversation to help you go deeper or help you understand the person. What are you listening for in people's answers? Well, this is the most exciting thing I learned in my research, actually, the chapter on listening. I didn't know what to listen for. Nobody taught me what to listen for. So what you're listening for is core values. What does this person value? And then what you get to do is sort of state back to them, you know, it really sounds like you value this. And guess what? They're going to feel really warmly connected to you and that you understand them. So for example, I was trying to connect with a colleague. We didn't have a friendship. We weren't connected yet. And I just asked about her work. You know, how is the work going? Is it challenging this semester? And she kept talking about every assignment that she had to turn in. And I noticed that she kept saying, oh, I didn't do my best work here or I misunderstood this and it wasn't my best work. So I said to this colleague, you know, as you're talking, I can tell that you really value excellence. And she said, I do, I really do. And so then I launched into one of the six pathways. I first, I wanted to ask like, well, do you share this with anyone else? Do people support you in this? Or how does this affect your body? You know, I could have just gone down the list, but instead I asked, well, volitionally, I said, well, what do you do? Like, what are your choices? In other words, how do you recover from that feeling of knowing you didn't do your best work? Now, Keith, that's going to lead to a gospel presentation on my part, because the way I deal with failure or knowing that I haven't done my best work is accepting the unconditional love and acceptance of God and how important that is to me every day that I know that I don't have to do my best. You know, it's so natural for me to talk that way. So after this conversation, this colleague said to me, I have loved this conversation so much. Would you please come back to my office next week? Hmm. And now we are best friends and we have lunch every Wednesday. <laughs> True story. I love so it. I did it with my neighbor too. Like just, it could be anyone. My neighbor was walking his dog and I just said, you know, what are you doing this weekend? And he said, well, I was going to go to the game, but my son changed plans on us. And then I had this itinerary and he kept talking about his schedule. So I said to him, you know, as you're talking, I can tell that you really value order and preparation and it bothers you when your plans change. And he said, I do. Oh my gosh, I really do. He was like, walk with me. Those are just two examples of how you can listen for core values. Yeah, people reveal a lot in their answers and you can really figure out what makes them tick. And sometimes you can figure out in a way that they haven't quite connected all the dots. Yes. Because, you know, you get caught up in your own thoughts and you you don't see the patterns. But if you just sit back and talk with somebody enough and listen well, you'll kind of connect some dots and you can say it back to them. And either they will know that and know you've really connected and feel this warm connection with you, or they might go, oh, you're right. Or, oh, you, that's, I haven't been able to articulate what you just said, right? Yes, Keith, that has happened three times in the last two weeks, three times. And it's so joyful when I said, I can tell you really value adventure. My friend was like, I 100% do. And when you said that, I realized why I've been so miserable. I have not had an adventure in two months, you know, which opened up this whole conversation about adventure. So that's fun. It seems like there's a couple, I mean, maybe there's more than this, but at least a couple different kinds of conversations. One that I am just drawn more to is ideas. I like to discuss stuff that's happening in the culture or books that we've read or another kind of conversation is more personal, I might say. Mm -hmm. It's more of an emotional connection. And there are people who are drawn more to that. And I don't think one's better than the other. They're both good. They're both important. And I want to embrace both of them. My wife and I are fortunate to have some friends that like to go a bit deeper in conversation. And so anything that's asked, everybody will answer. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes when we're on trips with this group or something, I'm seen as the question asker. They look to me to come up with some sort of question. And usually I can. Sometimes it's a lot of pressure because I'm like, I don't know if I have a great question today, (laughs) but here we go. But I remember one time I just asked the group, and these are all married couples, probably in their 40s, I would guess. And I asked, can you tell me about your relationship with your dad? Just share with your relationship with your dad. Oh, wow. 
it's amazing what that drew out of people. And there are a, a lot of tears shed, you know, and you got a window and insight into people if you are willing to ask a question and then just be quiet about it. Now I had to answer it too. Sometimes I try to be the question asker and not answer it, but this group won't let me get away with that. They make me answer my own questions. So let's get to the hard questions. You know, in the subtitle is the word incivility. And there's all kinds of hard conversations that you might have to have with someone. Like maybe you have to confront someone who's hurt you or you confront someone who's done something wrong. Do you have any tips or helps on how do you have that kind of conversation with somebody that you're having to challenge in a way that's uncomfortable? Well, the only advice I have, because I'm not an expert in that realm as much because I'm terrible at confronting people like I'm learning (laughs) this. But what I found is this, when the four mindsets are operative, when there's an environment where people are curious, believing the best, expressing concern, and then sharing your life, that it's really easy for me to say, you know, when you did that, it really hurt my feelings because it's not confrontational at that point. It's a loving conversation where I'm sharing my heart and they're able to respond to me. The other thing that is important with those kind of conversations is I learned about where conversations should end. And that is the three fresh goals of conversation. So even if it's a hard conversation of confrontation or something like that, I'm always thinking to myself, biblically, I want this conversation to end in one of three places. I want it to encourage the person. I want both of us to leave encouraged. The second goal is I want both of us to feel like I'm going to support whatever personal goals you have. So it's a supportive conversation. The third thing is I want to lead us to a place of worship or what the research calls awe. And there's amazing studies about when you're experiencing awe with someone or marveling with them, you feel really close to them. So what I would do in a hard conversation is try to end up in one of those three places, even to say, isn't it marvelous? Isn't it amazing? that we've had this conflict, but we can love each other. And, you know, I'm so grateful. You know, you could talk in a way that leads a person to kind of another plane of thinking. You're thinking about beauty, truth, joy. You're thinking about things that make people filled with awe. Yeah, I like that. So let's go to the controversial topics then. You're on a college campus and you said you're around a lot of people who don't necessarily share your values or perspectives on issues of the day. So how do you enter into those conversations? Or do you have any tips of how to have those conversations where you're talking about something that is sensitive? You talked about your students afraid to say things. And one reason they're lonely is because they're anxious that they might say the wrong thing. So I think you'd say that we should have conversations about those substantive issues. It's not like we should just ignore them and refuse to talk about them. On the other hand, you got to be careful how you have them. How do you go about having those kind of conversations? Well, again, one of the reasons I wrote the book was so I would learn how to do this. And I start with curiosity. And my favorite thing is I say, I would love to hear the story about how you became that way or how you adopted that opinion. Plus I teach storytelling. I teach the power of narrative and how people love narrative. People love stories of transformation. And I really love stories of transformation. I want to know what happened to people to make them the way they are. And that makes it really joyful and exciting and people feel loved and they feel a sense of belonging with you. Okay, but that only takes it so far. Do you ever say to them, okay, I hear your story, understand how you got there, but I don't think that's the right framing or I, I think that's wrong or, or do you not take it to that point? I often don't get into the argument part, mostly because it's not my disposition. I care more about connecting with that person because it would be in the realm of advice giving to me. So when they ask me, like for example, when I identify myself as a Christian to my students, Some of them right away will want to know like, okay, how did you choose Christianity besides any other religion? They want the answer. They want to know what I believe. In that case, that's a conversation where I've been invited to share my opinion. Right. It is rare that I'm in a warm and loving connection where I enter the realm of argument because it's not ever going to feel like argument. It's going to feel like, well, Dr. H, why do you believe differently on this issue? What happened to you to make you have your position? So I'm never in the realm of 
you are wrong and I'm in a position of judgment right now over you. Unless, of course, they ask me, do you think what I'm doing is wrong? Which has happened several times. Do you think that this behavior or this position is wrong? What is your viewpoint on it? But again, what I care most about is moving away from the idea of winning an argument to go back to the warm and loving connections where when you're close to people, you're actually going to see great opportunity to influence their life, but it won't feel like the realm of argument. Okay, so I want to affirm and then push back if I can and just see what you'll say. So I want to affirm that I agree with that somehow we've been convinced that winning arguments is more important than having friends. And I think that's wrong. I think we should pursue friendships and not try to win arguments. People who try to win arguments and lose friends are foolish and they're jerks usually. But let's set up a scenario. Let's say you're at dinner with a bunch of your colleagues, your fellow professors, or you're at a faculty meeting, and there's some contentious issue that comes up. And I mean, we could name them, but the point is to get you to take a position on them. Let's say it's pronouns or the Supreme Court ruling on abortion or, you know, whatever the contentious issues are of the day, Black Lives Matter. There's so many to choose from. (laughs) Vaccines, Trump, whatever. And they're going around and everybody's sharing their opinions or they're dialoguing. Well, I think this, I think that. And they ask your opinion. Do you fake a seizure? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) well, first of all, that's the hard thing. Nobody's really asking my opinion. That's the hard part. It's a lot of people spouting their opinions, but no one's in effective dialogue. Hmm. And so one thing I position myself again, because I'm in a neighborhood, I'm in a lot of different groups. Mostly what I love to do is position myself as a listener and a learner. And usually instead of being in a public forum where I'm asked my opinion, these things happen when I'm out to coffee with a friend and they say, okay, I know you're a Christian. I want to know this or this or this. It's in the context of a loving, warm connection. So I'm rarely in the realm of political argument in a public forum. However, I do believe there are people where that is God's calling on their life to be very clear public communicators in public forums where they are laying out great arguments. They're great critical thinkers. I do not feel that that is my role in the classroom or, you know, in faculty meetings to be like a pundit. I don't see that's what I'm doing. So it's more, I would give my opinion, but I'd be very judicious in how I said it because it's a hostile environment in a lot of places where I am. Yeah, I appreciate that. And maybe there's some wisdom there for all of us. Is our calling to be out in public trying to convince people of something? Or are we more to love people, hear their story, learn to build warm relationships with them, and then see where that goes? And I think maybe too many of us feel like we need to try to convince the world that we're right and they're wrong. So I appreciate that. You know yourself, you know what you're good at, you know the environment you're in, and you kind of stick by your convictions and you don't get sidetracked by whatever the hot topic is of the day. Hey, Dr. Holloman, where can we find your work? Your book is out and people can find it there, Six Conversations. You have other books as well. And I'm assuming people find that on Amazon, but do you have a webpage? Are you on Twitter or social media? I do have a website, heatherholloman.com. And if you click on like Six Conversations, there's some free resources there. You can get the excerpt of chapter one. You could also get my list of 100 favorite questions. And there's also a little worksheet I designed for what happens if you're in a difficult situation, like what question to ask if you're with someone who's grieving. What do you do if you're with someone who won't stop complaining? Or what do you do if you're with someone who won't talk at all? Or the person who just will only talk about politics? So I gave a little troubleshooting. So that's on that website too. I also have social media, Instagram. You know, I'm trying to launch season two of my podcast I'm on TikTok, Facebook, all of it. I'm just bad at social media, Keith. I don't spend a lot of time on social media. I'm not good at it. (laughs) So yeah, but the website, you'll find all the stuff you need. Well, I think the little helps on the website of what to do in certain situations with different kind of people, the complainer, the quiet person, you say you get that by just clicking on 
the six conversations image. Yep. And there'll be buttons that'll show the free. I can also send them to put in your show notes if you want, Keith. Well, that's a great resource. I think I want to take advantage of that. And I'm sure a lot of other people will. Hey, thanks so much for spending time with us. Would you mind praying for us that we would be better question askers, better people who are building friendships and connections with people? Would you be comfortable doing that? Yeah, sure. I'll close this in prayer. Great. Thanks. Lord, thank you for this wonderful conversation and just how much you model for us how to ask good questions and how to be in loving, warm relationships with other people. God, I pray that you use the words that we spoke today to just bring glory to yourself and to help people really find the warm connections that they're longing for and that this could really help create just a change in the culture that we could start building um, unity and having positive change because of close relationships. And um, we ask just your blessing on this um, podcast. And thank you so much for the listeners. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.